Today's episode is presented by Sweat Connected. Sweat Connected is a transformative way to work out. Sweat Connected has a mission to help you feel your best. Each expert instructor brings their signature method directly to you wherever you are in the world via Zoom. When you take a Sweat Connected class, you are able to interact with your instructor and the other participants in the class just like you would in a live studio experience. Whether you have been a group fitness participant for years or are newer, you will feel at home with Sweat Connected. Sweat Connected is exclusively offering our listeners 50% off their first class by going to https colon backslash backslash sweatconnected.com and using the code POD, that's code POD, P-O-D at https colon backslash backslash sweatconnected.com for 50% off your first class. Sweat Connected for all levels, all ages, all sizes, and all humans. Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> well, I'm wearing... You, can, you complain one day that it's not, it's too cold, and now it's too warm. What the fuck do you want me to do? I layered up. I'm wearing a bright pink tank top, a long sleeve t-shirt, a regular t-shirt. I wear a t-shirt under a long sleeve shirt under a t-shirt. And a fleece, very warm hoodie. And I'm wearing your very thick, warm Red Hot Chili Peppers. Okay, pants. let's go with it. They're not Red Hot Chili Peppers. They are Chili Pepper pajama pants, not Red Hot Chili but Peppers. But they're red. They... So I call them the Red Hot Chili Peppers. <sighs> <Okay>. <laughs> and I'm wearing my very, very thick uh, Slytherin house socks. And I'm drinking hot coffee. <laughs> So I'm very warm right now for once. For once until about the <laughs> middle of this thing and she starts going, oh, fucking cold because you're always fucking cold. Okay, I'm taking off a layer. Woo woo. The Of four. <laughs> <laughs> one of four. Wait, yeah. Yeah, one of four. All right, I'm Kevin. I'm Stephanie. Welcome to Open a Fucking Book. And we are on episode three of Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah, she's going to keep getting weird, which we like. All right, so uh, last left off. Um, where did we last leave off? Fuck if I know. <laughs> or wait, 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 let me redo that. You know what you get when you mix an elephant and a rhino? A fuck if I know? No, a hell if I know. Oh, yeah, that makes more sense. What would be a fuck if I know? I don't, I don't know. I don't know either. Okay. So when we last left off, uh, Hunter had just uh, started doing mescaline for the first time. And uh, he began to love that. He was having a hard time writing uh, because of his extended drug use. It was really starting to get to him. But in the spring... Playboy assigned him to do a personality profile of Olympic medalist Jean-Claude Killy, the French skier 
that wowed the world in the 68 Winter Games, and then retired. He was now making commercials for Chevy. Hunter went to the Chicago Auto Show, which happened to be at the same place the DNC was held the year before. So bad memories come uh, a-washing over him of being beaten down by police. And... So he's probably going to take more drugs. Uh, well, he's always taking drugs. So that's, that's just a given. Uh, he hung out with Kelly at the Chevy tent with their newest pitch man. You want to talk about some crimes that happened in Chicago the year before? NFL All-Star O.J. Simpson. <laughs> nice. For all the younger people who are listening, O.J. Simpson was an amazing football player, possibly one of the greatest of all time, turned murderer. Allegedly. <laughs> allegedly. And then went to prison for a long time for a, uh, I believe they got him when, uh, he, like, threatened a bunch of people who took some of his stuff in Vegas. Like, he threatened to murder them. Go figure. And he uh, spent some time in jail. Hey, I believe he's living in Vegas now, and he's doing pretty good for himself. He's got a large Twitter following, from what I understand. Now, he wrote to Silberman, quote, What seemed like a quick and easy thing has turned into a complicated monster and suggested the assignment could be a part of the American Dream Book. We all remember the... Uh, Death of the American Dream book, he still is supposed to write for Random House. Now, Sandy delivered their... Remember, Sandy, again, was pregnant. Sandy delivered their daughter in July at Aspen Valley Hospital with Hunter by her side. They named her Sarah. The delivery went smoothly with no complications for the mother, but once the baby was born, the room grew silent and they rushed her out of the room. Orderlies took Sandy to a recovery room with a window that looked out into a field of mowed grass and flowers. Sandy laid there staring out for a bit. Uh, she had asked Hunter how everything was, and Hunter had told her that the baby was as big as a football player, you know, really putting it on thick, like, oh, no, the baby's good, the baby's fine, but she knew that something was wrong. Uh, after staring out into that field for a little bit, she had turned her head to see the doctor, and the look on his face, Sarah had died. Because of the alcohol? Uh, so they, they got into the, they got into it a little bit in one of these books about some gene that both her and Hunter have that make it almost impossible to have a healthy full-term baby. Like she had um, miscarriages before she got really big into alcohol and stuff like that. And abortion, too. Uh, but apparently there's there was something going on where there, it was it was really complicated for them to have a healthy baby together just because of their DNA, I suppose. There's something, there's some gene or something like that that they both had that made it hard for them to, like, Juan was pretty much a miracle that, that he was able to be born and be healthy. And they'll try to have kids later on with very low... The doctors give them a very low percentage rate without the drugs or alcohol. So the drugs or alcohol probably obviously doesn't help any. But them having a child together is incredibly difficult already. Because, you know, just, sign, you know, just physically. Okay. Okay. 
So Sarah had died. Sandy had told Hunter, quote, I could just walk out of here, just walk out of here, and then nothing is real. And if that's not real, then my baby didn't die either. Then Hunter told her, quote, Sandy, if you need to do that, then you do that. If you need to go away, then you do that. But I just want you to know that Juan and I need you and that we'll be glad when you come back. Sandy said it was one of the most beautiful things Hunter had ever done for her. She she had the uh, she had the option of just going crazy, which for anybody who's lost a baby out there, it's it's a it's a pretty tempting option to just fucking lose it. And she was on that verge, but when Hunter told her that, she decided, no, I have a family I need to be here for, and it kind of snapped her back into reality. Now, when Hunter asked about the body. The doctor said they would, quote, dispose of it. Hunter was outraged, so much to the point that he and Billy Noonan broke into the hospital morgue, stole Sarah's body, and took her back to Al Farm to bury her there. Wow. <laughs> Are you okay? Yeah, that's, uh, oh. I mean, you shouldn't have to steal your own daughter's body. I lost a daughter. And we didn't have to steal her body. The funeral parlor that we uh, had her funeral at came, picked her up, took her back, got her all fixed up, and we had a proper burial for her. I mean, obviously, this is, you know, a long time. This was 60s, 70s, but still, you wouldn't think you'd be just dispose of a body. It's, it's not a, you know, aborted fetus that you just dispose of. It's, you know, the baby was born. Are you okay? Yeah, that's just kind of fucked up. Yep. Yeah. Welcome to Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> okay. Okay. Go go on. Okay. Now, Hunter's youngest brother, Jim, had came to the farm in the summer of 69. Virginia wanted Hunter to give his little brother guidance or support. Jim had been depressed and had even mentioned suicide, and Hunter really didn't make things any easier. He was hard on Jim, especially when Hunter had friends over and would call him a sissy or a wimp when he didn't play along with whatever they were doing. He spent most of his time with Sandy and Juan. Sandy really um, kind of leaned on him for support through through a lot of it during the summer, um, through losing the... No, don't. Just wait. But, you know, he, he was he was there more for Sandy than, than Hunter was because Hunter was going through his own shit. She leaned on him a little bit. And that's really what he did with most of his time when he was there. So he spent it with Sandy and Juan. Now, he saw how Hunter treated her, and he didn't approve. But he was too scared of his older brother, who was more like a fun uncle, because there was such a difference in age between them. Uh, so he was kind of scared to really speak up about the abuse that he saw, mental and physical, going on in the home. Finally, on trip to the airport, when Jim was leaving for Louisville, Hunter spoke, quote, This suicide business, you're not serious about that, are you? And Jim downplayed it. Hunter made him feel like that would be a pretty pathetic thing to do. After he returned home, Jim wrote, a, wrote Hunter a long letter. Took him several days to get everything perfect. At 20 years old, Jim finally came out as a homosexual to his brother. Hunter never responded commented, or discussed it, ever. What a dick. Well, so there's two sides. of the, so, so yeah, you're like, well, fuck. He's, he's pouring his heart out to you, and he doesn't ever get a response about it. 
they never once talk about it. For the rest of Jim's life, it's never brought up. But Hunter does continue to invite him to the house. He does continue to talk to him about other things. He just doesn't. So obviously the homosexuality wasn't enough to completely cut him off from his life. But he never, it's not. Does Hunter think it's something that's even worth talking about? Or is it just a, a subject he wants to avoid altogether? They don't really say. But that's pretty much why he was, he's was he been depressed and he was, you know, suicidal because 1969, you know, not the best time for homosexuals in this, in this country. It's still not the best time. Yeah. So, and, and, that, and it's still a problem today with, with people not feeling like they're accepted because of their sexual orientation and leading to suicides and depression and it's another one of the many fucked up things we need to fix but so that that look you gave me when i told you that he spent all his time with sandy and you're like huh? i was like no <laughs> nope that's not what they were doing i was like is he gonna have an affair with his brother's wife nope Fuck. nope sure no. didn't now near the fall hunter and sandy started to notice changes in the city they had both grown to love Greedy developers building cookie-cutter condos and asphalt laid over the beautiful nature around the ski town. When they moved there, you could ski right off the hills into downtown to the bars or restaurant, leaving your skis on the sidewalk outside. And now, you couldn't even see the skiers on the hills from the middle of town. Hunter saw his involvement in local politics as being a part of his American dream obsession. The Republican mayor of Aspen was running for re-election, unopposed. Hunter got a hold of local attorney Joe Edwards, quote, My man, you don't know me, and I don't know you, but in three weeks from now, you're going to be the mayor of Aspen. Very confident. He is very confident. He is. Or cocky. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah. some of it he can back up, some of it he can't. Like, he can, like, he'll talk all day, and when it comes to showing people up, he'll do it, but when it comes to a fight, like we saw with the Hells Angels, he'll hop in his trunk and wait it out. Yeah, yeah, I think he's more cocky than confident. Now, Edwards eventually agreed to run, and Hunter put him on his freak power ticket. So, not Democrat, that was was the name of his little uh, political organization that he had grown, was the freak power. We should bring that political party back. (laughs) Uh, The campaign got off to a late start, but Edwards was known as the hippie lawyer, the local lawyer that would stand up for the local hippie and the free speech activists so much that any time any of them got into the smallest amount of trouble, they went to him for help. Uh, the campaign almost worked. The numbers are a little convoluted. In one source, I read he lost by six votes. The other, I read, he lost by only one vote. So you got to think, if he would have gotten his campaign started maybe a little bit sooner, he probably would have won. That's fucking sweet. Yeah, I know. Now, even though they lost, the near victory and the whole political process reinvigorated Hunter. Quote, it has changed my whole notion of what's possible in America. He said of the first, but not the last, freak power campaign. Now, meanwhile, Playboy aggressively rejected Hunter's article on Jean-Claude Kelly. He took several shots at Chevy fucking this fucking city with their their little dick rednecks with their big fucking 
overhauled trucks. God damn it, I can't record a goddamn sentence without somebody driving down the fucking road with their overhauled truck. I came down, I was coming back from work the other day, and this guy had probably an eight-inch fucking uh, steel exhaust pipe coming out of his truck, pointed directly to the people behind him, just blowing black exhaust over everybody. Holy fuck. Middle America, get your shit together. Now, he took se- he took several shots at Chevy and play. <clears throat> I'm all flustered. Just give me a second. Deep breath in, exhale. Now, now he took several shots at Chevy, and Playboy was trying to get them as an advertiser, and thought the piece would cost them money. "Quote: Thompson's ugly, stupid arrogance is an insult to everything we stand for." They said they would never hire Hunter for anything ever again. Hunter let friend know of his outrage, and news got to an old friend, Warren Hinkle, who had teamed up with a former New York Times reporter, Sidney Zion, who were starting a new magazine to showcase the best of new journalism. Named after a Nottingham hog farmer, Scanlon's Monthly was born. Hinkley asked if he could run the piece in his new magazine. Hunter responded with a letter where he tore Playboy to shreds, quote, that whole goddamn magazine is a conspiracy of anemic masturbators. Oh, I mean, it's true. Uh-huh. Scanlon's Monthly not only ran the article in March of 1970, they also prefaced it with Hunter's letter bitching about being blackballed by Playboy. Now, Hunter's original assignment for the slick magazine profile on the skier and his life since becoming world famous. Two problems, though. One... Killy didn't talk much, and two, despite his Playboy image, Killy was pretty dull. Hunter was writing about Killy's life as a huckster for Chevy and other sponsors, finding out that Killy actually hated Chevy, but they weren't paying him for his opinion, they were paying him to sell cars. At one point, Hunter exploded with frustration in a phone call with Killy, quote, As far as I know, you don't exist. You're a life-size dummy made of plastic foam. I can't write much of an article about how I once saw Jean-Claude Killy across a crowded room at the Stockyard Amphitheater. Killy laughed and said, quote, Well, maybe you could write about how hard it is to write about me. It was an idea that would finally give Hunter the approach he needed that he would continue to use going forward. Fun little story about while trying to enjoy the auto show, he found himself a chance to have some fun. Quote, Meanwhile, slumped in a folding chair near the Kelly exhibit, smoking a pipe and brooding on the spooks in the place, I am suddenly confronted by three young boys wearing bass Weegians and paddling shirts, junior high types, and one of them asked me, Are you Jean-Claude Kelly? Well, that's right, I said. What are you doing, they asked. Well, you goddamn silly little waterhead, what the hell does it look like I'm doing? I didn't say that. I gave the question some thought. Well, I finally said, I'm just sitting here smoking marijuana. I head up my pipe. This is what makes me ski so fast. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. He's just going to ruin his reputation and be a dick. I thought it was great. It was just a little thing, but I, I felt like putting it. I, I that's it awesome, I though. Like, bravo. Bravo. <laughs> Be petty. That's awesome. (laughs) Okay. Now, Hinkle didn't mess with Hunter's copy like the pageant had. He let Hunter's real voice come out and didn't quiet it. The reaction to the Killy piece was strong from readers and from Hunter's friends 
who finally saw in one of his articles the voice they had heard in his letters or in his kitchen, and people liked it. Now, the Aspen Times served as the voice of the town's wealthy, and getting covered for the freak power was unlikely. They couldn't start an alternative paper, so Hunter came up with the Aspen Wall Poster. His friend and fellow doctor, Tom Benton, created designs for one side, and Hunter ranted on the back, folded into quarters. It was the size of a magazine. And the first one in March began the run for the fall campaign. Hunter planned on running for sheriff of Pitkin County. He could not be a mayor. Sheriff. Oh, sheriff? Sheriff. No, definitely not be a sheriff. <laughs> he was running Fuck, for no. sheriff. Now, during the Edwards campaign, they used the two-finger peace sign for the Freak Power logo. But now he thought up a new logo. A double-thumbed fist, one thumb on each side of four fingers, holding a peyote button. You know what a peyote button is? Yeah, it's peyote is what Indians smoke. Yeah, and the button, the, 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 it's a cactus without spine, without the spikes on them really and it's shaped like a button and that's what it's holding it's got instead of a pinky well it's got a pinky on it and a thumb and then a thumb on the other side of the pinky and it's holding it up in the air it's really kind of a weird looking thing but it's, it's pretty neat yeah. you like you look at it you're like it's wrong but it doesn't look wrong enough to be like wrong wrong it's weird i'll, I'll post a picture of it on uh on the instagram when we uh after we post Oh, forgive me. I shouldn't have said Indians, Native Americans. Uh, they go by they, you. You hear them talk. Uh, they'll they'll say Indians, American Indian or Native American. That you know they, I, they call themselves. Indians. I don't like saying Indian. That's fine because Native Americans because the natives. All right now, this was a symbol that he would favor until the end of his life. Uh, go to. Find your parents if your parents are a little bit more hippie back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, a lot of them might have a, a uh, Freak Power logo tattooed on their calf or on their forearm or something. It, it, it was a fairly popular tattoo come uh, the 70s and into the 80s and into the 90s when he was really kind of getting you know big with the, the movies coming out and everything. Now, one day while getting a haircut, something went awry, and about half of Hunter's head was shaved. Always able to go with the flow and capitalize on a situation, Hunter decided to get the rest shaved and went into the campaign with a gleaming, polished skull. It gave him a talking point. The incumbent had a crew cut, and Hunter referred to him as, quote, my long-haired opponent. <laughs> <laughs> Very clever. Uh -huh. Now, Jim Silberman reminded him that Random House still wanted to publish the American Dream book. But Hunter had lost the momentum for it and hated being dragged, dragged back into the mess. Quote, I loathe the fucking memory of the day when I told you I would go write about the death of the American dream. Fuck the American dream. It's always been a lie. Whoever still believes it deserves what they get, and they will. Bet on it. He didn't want to do the book, so he tried to sell Silberman on the idea of a fictional narrative told through the eyes of Hunter's alter ego, Raoul Duke. He could put the character center stage at the Chicago convention, the election, the Nixon inauguration. It wouldn't be the last time we'd hear from Raoul Duke. And for those of you who know Hunter S. Thompson's writings, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And to get publicity for the campaign, Hunter went to the office of Rolling Stone in San Francisco and its creator, Jan Warner. 
It wasn't a great first impression. Hunter was late. Then Hunter finally appeared wearing an Aloha shirt, a frosted blonde woman's wig, dark small lens glasses, and clutching a cigarette holder in his teeth. He took to slowly and methodically emptying his large satchel he had brought with him, two six-packs of beer, a bottle of scotch, can openers, knives, cigarettes, smoking paraphernalia, notebooks, hats, wigs, flares, and an air horn. What the fuck? This is another thing that he does uh, more and more. He'll, when he meets somebody or when he goes to somebody's office, he'll set a satchel down, and he'll slowly and methodically take his time and empty every single thing out of his satchel so you can see everything he has, and it's usually just a bunch of weird shit. Now, they, well, okay. He talked for about an hour and a half or two hours about everything under the sun, all while drinking one of the six-packs. After that, Hunter got up, asked about the toilet, and then left. Jan said, quote, I know I'm supposed to be the spokesman for American youth culture and all, but what the fuck was that? Hunter ended up getting an article job for Rolling Stone on the sheriff race in Aspen, which Hunter hoped would bring in the young hippie vote. Jan even offered to sell the Aspen wall poster through the pages of Rolling Stone. The relationship between Jan and Hunter would be a long and prosperous one for both of them. Jan loved how Hunter wrote and that he didn't shy away from doing things differently than other writers. Hunter liked that Jan didn't pull punches when it came to telling his writers what he felt. He was completely open to letting everyone write in their own style. If it was good, he would publish it. If it wasn't, he would return it to you and tell you what he thought and that you should start over, even with Hunter. So that's kind of what Hunter wanted. Yeah, but Hunter didn't like when other people did that to him. No, Hunter didn't like when people told when people fixed his shit. When people would, would take his stuff and fix it or take his stuff and tear it up. But if somebody told him what was wrong or said, no, this is I'm not publishing this, this isn't good. And he didn't like it when people told him stuff wasn't good. But Jan wouldn't just say, this is no good, I'm not publishing it. He would say, this isn't any good, I don't like this, you need to fix it. Hunter respected that. Because he wasn't telling him, no, I'm just not going to publish it. He was telling him, fix it, and then we'll see. Okay. Now, later that month, before the campaign really got going, it was suggested to Hunter that he go home to Louisville and cover the Kentucky Derby. Now, anybody who knows anything... What? What? I didn't even say anything funny. <laughs> you almost just, spit out all your coffee. Just imagining Hunter at the Kentucky Derby. Now, there's two sides of the Kentucky Derby. There's the side you see on television with all of the women with their big elaborate hats and the men in their suits and the horse racing. And then there's the other side. The, the betting. The, the betting, the, the underworld, the drunken debauchery. People get fucked up at the Kentucky, at the Kentucky Derby. Yeah. So he called Warner Hinkle and got a commitment from Scanlon's for a piece. But he also needed pictures, not photos. There's a special kind of ugliness at the Derby that only an illustrator can capture. Enter Ralph Stedman. Ralph specializes in bizarre illustrations with distended, half-skeletal, half-protoplasmic figures that set him apart from others. He was about the same age as Hunter, just born in Wales. J.C. Suarez, art director for Scanlon's, called him up and asked him, quote, How would you like to go to Kentucky 
and meet an ex-Hell's Angel. <laughs> oh my gosh. Not quite, but... So he was told to look for a tall guy with a shaven head and a hunting jacket. He walked around Churchill Downs for two days asking for Hunter Johnson. Then, when he was in the press room drinking a beer, a tall man walked up to him and said, quote, Hello, I'm Hunter S. Thompson. I was told to look for a matted-haired geek with string warts. They said you were weird, but not this weird. <laughs> they drank a lot over the next week and learned they had a lot in common, especially their disdain for authority. At first, Hunter hated Ralph's, quote, filthy habit of drawing people, mostly because of how he made those people look. No one ever looked good in a Ralph Stedman picture. For those of you who haven't seen it, I will post some of his pictures on our Instagram and our Twitter. They are something else. Are they more like caricatures instead of... Uh, uh, there's no real definition for a Ralph Stedman portrait. I'll show you. So, well, you're calling them portraits, but I'm guessing they're not actual portraits. Well, it's a portrait because you're drawing a person, so it's still a portrait. Uh, even a caricature is technically a portrait, but... No, because they're... Yes, the, the, the... Exaggerated. Yes. This goes... So take that caricature exaggeration and, uh, like, melt everything down and, like, show bone. It, it, there's something else. And I, I will post them on our Instagram. It's it, They're hard to explain. Quote, I wish you would stop doing that, that filthy habit you have of making little scribbles of people. They take it personally, you know. Those things could get us to, into trouble because they're really rather ugly. I don't mind them myself, you know, but they really are ugly things. You've got to stop it. People take it personally, but they don't take it personally when he writes shit about people. Yeah. Fucking. But, but see, Hunter wrote shit about people that had he felt had wronged him or were fuckheads. Ralph was just, he'd just draw anybody. Just some, just some unknown person standing there. He'd just start doodling them. And he would doodle them in his own special Ralph Stedman way. And it, it, honestly, if you didn't know him and his style, you would be very insulted by the way he drew you. Because he over-exaggerate with everything. And again, I will show you when we were done and I you, know, you will understand. I know, but everything Hunter said was hurtful towards... Again, to, <laughs> towards people that had either wronged him or he had a vendetta against or something like that. He, he, to he, everyone, his wife, his child, his friends. Well, but those are people he knows. Not just, not it just, not matter. just strange. He's, he's not just standing there saying shit to strangers. Yes, he is. Not really. Yes, he is. When? All the time. When? He didn't personally know Nixon and he was talking shit about no, Nixon. But, no, but he's the president of the United States or, and the soon-to-be president of the United States before that. And he, he was in the public eye, and that's fair game. I'm talking about just, just, some, just some random person stand, sitting there watching the race. Hunter's not going to sit there and just ramble on about how about this fucking person if they're not, if they're minding their own business and not hurting anybody. Ralph Stedman would just start doodling people and and Hunter would be like, dude, you can't just you can't just do that to just some random straight. Now if they stand up and bit a fuckhead, be like, yeah, doodle the fuck away. But if they're just sitting there, I think it's the pot calling the kettle black. Oh, well, and that could be. Now when Ralph told him that that's what he was contracted to do, Hunter told him, quote. 
Well, maybe it is, but you can't keep drawing people like that. It's something with Kentuckians particularly. That's not a drawing to them. It's an insult. It's like telling people you're the ugliest piece of shit I ever saw or something. You'll get in a fight. The next night, they met with Hunter's brother Davidson in a restaurant, and Ralph, of course, started drawing people. Even Davidson. It didn't go very well. Davidson's feelings were really hurt. Quote, you've upset my brother, you know that? And not only that, but people are looking. I really don't think we should stay around much longer. As it happens, I have mace in my pocket, so we can get out of here. People don't like what you're doing. It's a nasty, unpleasant thing. He was really getting paranoid. Ralph again reminded him that that's what he was there to do, and Hunter told him to do it later because they needed to get out of there, and then proceeded to mace the entire restaurant. Ralph said, quote, it was a terrible thing to do. I mean, we got maced too. The whole damn place got maced. People were coughing and sputtering. Get me outside! It was the first time I realized, oh God, this is not an ordinary person. This is somebody that does things with a paranoid fever. <laughs> he maced an entire restaurant. Including himself. Including himself. He's a fucking... He just started spraying mace everywhere, and it got on. It, it reminds me of the uh, the concrete bag in the bar. Yes. It just got over everybody. And I bet his... I bet nobody was paying attention to him drawing. Probably not. And his brother wasn't even paying attention. He was just... No, he showed it to Davidson, and apparently Davidson was pretty upset about it, because he... He, he drew him and his wife, and it wasn't very flattering of either one of them. And apparently he was pretty upset. And I bet if he would have let, if Hunter would have let him explain, they would have been fine with I, it. I don't know, but yeah. <sighs> oh, Zeus. Now, after a time, Hunter began to enjoy Ralph's drawings. But while Ralph drew, he noticed that Hunter hadn't written anything about the Derby, except a few notes in a notebook. Well, that's because... This article would be less about the Derby and more about Hunter's adventures at the Derby. Not all of it fact. Just like with his Killy piece, he turned to a story about getting the story, starting two days before the Derby and ending two days after the Derby, the two of them suffering from enormous hangovers. The outcome was called, The Kentucky Derby is Decadent and Depraved. Throughout, Hunter kept trying to get Ralph to find, quote, the face. He vowed it would be bloated and booze-ravaged, full of horror and bile. They found it two days after the race when, quote, we looked in the mirror and that's when we saw the decadence and depravity. The derby itself was barely in the article. The magazine used Ralph's drawing of a gap-toothed moron as the lead in the piece. <laughs> See, that's the thing, like... You know how I told you I love stock car racing? Yeah. I I don't think I do. I think I love going to the racetrack with the family. Yeah. I don't remember much of the racing. I remember the crashes. I remember running around the track with my brothers and sisters and going underneath the, the bleachers and seeing all the weird shit people were doing in the bars and yeah. stuff like that. It's the experience. It's not so much the actual thing that you're there for. It's the experience of everything. Yeah. yeah. Like, I don't really remember my uncle's races. I don't remember my cousin's races. I don't remember my dad's races, but I remember everything we used to do. Yeah. And I remember some of the big crashes. 
that's that's pretty much it. And I remember running the track after all the races were done. Uh huh. Yeah. It's it's the experience. I went to a lot of baseball games when I was a kid. I don't really remember any of the games, but I remember all the stuff that went around during the game, like tailgating a football game. Uh, half the time, you're not even paying attention to the football game. You're just—it's the experience of being, you know, in the parking lot, tailgating, all that shit. So it's usually more about the whole experience than it is about the actual event. Yeah. Now Hunter wanted to get to San Francisco and work directly with Hinkle or go home to Al Farm, but the magazine decided he should work in New York. Hunter was locked away at the Royalton Hotel, and a copy boy shuttled messages and pages between him and the Scanlon's office. For six days, he wrote about flashbacks at his return to Louisville and tried to pull together a fairly coherent narrative. But under the deadline pressure, Hunter started sending scrawled pages ripped from his journal. Half-formed thoughts, sketches, semi-lucid notes. He knew he would eventually get a phone call and get yelled at for what he was sending. But instead, the copy boy came back and asked for more. He was embarrassed and was convinced he was finished. Quote, I was sure it was the last article I was ever going to do for anybody. They printed it word for word, even with the pauses, thoughts, and jagged stuff like that. He had constructed a conventional opening. Just at the moment in the article when he and Ralph appeared to be spiraling out of control, guzzling wild turkey and behaving like madmen, the tone of the article changed. But the stops and starts of visions and fantasies matched their actions. Hunter eventually brought it home with a traditionally structured ending, in which he took Ralph to the airport, kicked him out of the car, calling him a, quote, twisted pig fucker, and offered some parting words. Quote, we can do without your kind in Kentucky. This was it. Hunter was convinced he would never again work for a major magazine. He also thought that Ralph's drawings would be too repulsive for publication and that he would never be allowed to return to the United States. After the thing was sent off to the printer, Hunter wrote Hinkle an apology. Quote, It strikes me as a monument to whatever kind of limbo exists between humor and tragedy. I wish there had been time to do it better. To his friend Bill Cardoso, he confessed, quote, It's a shitty article, a classic of irresponsible journalism. He knew he was a failure at the craft he had been practicing for more than a decade. He was wrong. The Kentucky Derby, as decadent and depraved, was hailed as a triumph and brought rabid attention to Scanlon's. Hunter said, quote, I started getting calls and letters. People were calling a tremendous breakthrough in journalism, a stroke of genius. And I thought, what the shit? <laughs> After reading it, Cardoso wrote back, quote, I don't know what in the fuck you're doing, but you've changed everything. It's totally gonzo. And now, Hunter had a name for his style. Hunter couldn't understand what was happening. He was stunned. Quote, I thought, holy shit, if I can write like this and get away with it, why should I keep trying to write like the New York Times? It was like falling down an elevator shaft and landing in a pool full of mermaids. I don't understand. <laughs> I don't get that, that either. But, uh, he didn't have to polish every text and could step into his own writings. He could write about being Hunter Thompson, and people would buy it. The American Cup yacht race was set for mid-September, and Ralph suggested maybe they go cover that. Hunter could take some time away from the growing sheriff's campaign to watch some boats. They met up in Rhode Island, and Hunter found a captain who would take them out into this huge boat, and he got the idea that maybe he'd do a story 
by trying to get on board the racing boats, the Gretel and the Intrepid. Quote, We really could kick some ass. These people are horrible with their filthy $2 million yachts with gin lounges on the front of them and everybody sitting there and drinking their mint juleps and their gin and tonics and whatever else they have. It's filthy, Ralph. It's an expression of decadence I'd like you to see. Ralph got horribly seasick on the boat and Hunter demanded that he take some psilocybin, a.k.a. magic mushrooms. He tried one and, quote, That's when the screaming red-eyed dog started. It was a full moon, but all the reflections I saw were red. The next thing I knew, I was saying, I feel like Hitler. It was a really awful panicked feeling. They took a dinghy to shore and called Scanlans. They learned the magazine was going out of business and the yacht story would be the last if they made the deadline. Fuck the deadline. It was time for some fun and to spend Scanlans money. They grabbed some spray paint and, under the cloak of darkness, rowed out to the Gretel. He asked Ralph what he wanted to write, and all he could think of in his fungus-induced state was, quote, Fuck the Pope. Fuck the Pope. <laughs> Unfortunately, when they started shaking their cans, the uh, little marble that's inside that breaks up everything, it alerted security, and they weren't able to write anything. Also, no story ever appeared. That's sad. So it's a free trip to Rhode Island, and you get to spend some money while you're there, uh, but you didn't get you didn't you didn't get to ride on the side of the boat like you wanted to. Which uh, fuck the Pope. Moral of the story is to shake the can so before for everybody who wants to know what's going on. <laughs> Stephanie just put some orange gel in her mouth, so her mouth's a little numb. I have a horrible, horrible toothache. <laughs> I have a broken tooth, and I think I have an exposed nerve. And it's been in horrible pain since yesterday. <laughs> I'm not laughing at her pain. He's laughing at my, uh, what's it called? You're speaking. Yeah. No, I was, um, not a lisp, but, uh. Speech impediment? Yeah. Yeah. Now, Hunter went back to Aspen to finally get serious on the campaign for sheriff. Or interrupt what I was saying. <laughs> what were you saying? I'm sorry. Shake the can before you get to the boat. Yeah, but I think it's just kind of human nature to shake it, you know, anyway, right before you're using it. But that's the moral of the story. Shake, shake the, can the can before, before you, you get, get to, to the, the boat. boat. Okay, well, write that down in your notebooks, kids. Today's episode is brought to you by our brand new exclusive discount code, for thebeardstruggle.com. Gentlemen, have you grown out that beard? Or are you just starting? Well, if you're like me, you began to notice pretty quickly that the skin underneath all that hair can get pretty dry and flaky. And trust me when I tell you, beard dandruff sucks. And the people over the Beard Struggle know this and have made it their life's work to develop the best products to make growing and keeping that beard as painless as possible. Over time, the ingredients in their formulas have proven themselves not just because their customers have had enormous success with them, but because they have worked for centuries. They use 100% natural ingredients, never test on animals, and promise a 90-day money-back guarantee. From the day and night oils, the shampoos and conditioners, all the way to the ingenious beard straightener. They have everything you need to tame that face fur, and I use them. My beard has never looked, felt, or smelled better. Just ask my wife. So go to thebeardstruggle.com, all one word, or click on our link in the show notes and use our new exclusive discount code AUDIO15 at checkout for 15% off. 
That's A-U-D-I-O-1-5 for 15% off your entire order. Go now and feast your face! Now, Hunter went back to Aspen to finally get serious on the campaign for sheriff. Hunter decided to go all out with the freak power ticket proposal. Go all in and all out. He proposed ripping up the asphalt in town and use it to make a huge parking structure just outside of town where people would park their cars. The city streets would be sodded over, and all public movement would be by foot or by a fleet of bicycles maintained by the city police. His second idea was to change the town's name from Aspen to Fat City, <clears throat> hopefully preventing land rapers and human jackals from capitalizing on the name Aspen. The name change would do nothing to the people of the town, but would hopefully keep away the buy low, sell high, move on types. Quote, these swine should be fucked, broken, and driven across the land. His third major idea was to control drug sales. He wanted to install on the courthouse lawn a Bassendito platform and a set of stocks in order to punish dishonest dope dealers in a proper public fashion. It would be the general philosophy of the sheriff's department that no drug worth taking should be sold for money, and this approach would establish a unique and very human ambiance in Aspen, Fat City, drug culture, which was already so much a part of the local reality that only a lunatic would talk about trying to eliminate it. Now, honestly, two of those ideas went on pretty well with most people in Aspen. What kept a lot of people from voting for him was the fact that he wanted to change the town's name. If he would have left that out, there's a chance he would have done better, maybe even won. He was technically ahead of his time because Colorado was the first state to legalize weed. Uh, and, and we're actually going to get to that here in just a few minutes. Now, Hunter's article on the election was finally turned into Rolling Stone and released on October 1st with the cover line, Freak Power in the Rockies, actually titled The Battle of Aspen, inside the magazine. The article covered the previous year's campaign for Joe Edwards and the Freak Power Uprising. Knowing he probably wouldn't win his election, the article and the spectacle of the election itself was actually set up more to draw attention away from the races they really hoped to win. Ned Vare's bid to become county commissioner and Billy Noonan's run for coroner, the only official with the authority to remove the sheriff from office. So it's kind of a cloak and dagger type thing. Ah. Like, hey, everybody, don't worry about that. Look at me. Look at me. Look at what I'm doing. Look at me. Hoping that these two would win because that's really where the power was. Uh, but as time went on, Hunter did start to take his race a bit more seriously, asking old friends to come in and help run things. Porter Bibb declined, saying, quote, if you win, it's going to set law enforcement and jurisprudence back half a century, which is probably not wrong. But Bill Kennedy, John Clancy, and Oscar Acosta did show up to help, as did a new man in town named Bob Broadus, who drew interest in the campaign because of what Hunter was saying and decided to volunteer and would become another friend for life. He'll show up later on in the story. Now, they turned the Hotel Jerome into their campaign headquarters, there was attention on the race from the BBC, the New York Times, the LA Times, and Time Magazine. 
Carol Whitmire, the incumbent sheriff, was so worried that he called the Colorado Bureau of Investigation to see what could be done. The Freak Power campaign, leaders were told to shut down operations at the Jerome because violence was on its way from the right-wingers opposed to their stances. Hunter, Kennedy, Clancy, and former NFL player named Dave Megacy, who played seven seasons with the St. Louis Cardinals football team in the 60s, turned the ranch at Al Farm into a fortified compound. But no violence ever arrived. At one point, a, a group showed up at a car at the gates, and they were turned away, and they left, and nothing came of it. But all these guys were like, they're like hunkering down on the floors, waiting for gun like bullets to be shot through, and they had you know, pistols and rifles and shotguns. They're all, I mean, they're they're ready for fucking war, and it just never, never showed up. So. Yeah, kind of like when uh got threats, and yes, yeah, yeah, you, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, um. So where I work got some is downtown St. Louis and going through all the uh, uh, riots that had been happening uh, lately. And we got uh, threat. We, we heard of a credible threat through a police informant that there was going to be a group of fucking hillbillies coming with shotguns that were going to try to break into the place. And uh, they armed up and they were ready. And then fucking nothing happened. They even made us leave early because they were sure that there was going to be gunfire and then fucking nothing happened. So. Now, Hunter lost the election by... And it wasn't riots. It was uh, people not wanting to wear masks and shit. No, this this was before that. Um, no, it was right. No, because nobody was allowed there at that time. We were Everybody was shut down. This was something they were going to do because they were... I, I don't know. Because they were just being fucking stupid. Oh, yeah. Right. Now... Hunter lost the election by less than 500 votes, so not bad. If he would have taken it more seriously, who knows? Yeah. Vare and Newton also lost. Hunter stood under the hot TV lights with a woman's wig and an American flag wrapped around his neck and gave a quick speech after the results came in. Quote, Unfortunately, I proved what I set out to prove, that the American dream really is fucked. I didn't believe it until now. I've already made up my mind. This is the last trip into politics, at least this kind of politics, as he ripped off the wig and flashed a smile. But even though the freak power ticket didn't win, it would change Aspen for the good, as the racist and more conservative officials would eventually be ran out of the office and replaced with a more liberal, open-minded bunch, almost completely influenced by Hunter's time in politics. Fuck yeah. So he, he changed, he really did change the face of an entire city, which would honestly go to change the entire state, which eventually would help in changing the whole nation. So your thoughts on Hunter S. Thompson aside, he, he really did do something there. I think Hunter S. Thompson or making marijuana legal. <laughs> Some places, not everywhere. Almost everywhere. Although, it kind of went a bit too far in Oregon. Well, okay, so the whole thing about Oregon is everybody's like, oh, you can do whatever you want in Oregon now. No. no. They decriminalized it, which means if you're found with a little bit of coke, you're not going to go to prison. You're going to get a ticket. If you're found trafficking pounds of cocaine or heroin or anything like that, you will go to jail. For drug trafficking. But if you're found with a little bit of coke that you're using for yourself, you're going to get a fine. 
not go to jail, which was what they were looking for. And they made mushrooms for medicinal purposes legal. And apparently, depending on who you listen to, but I believe it that that they are used for things like bipolar, depression, a um, whole bunch of different stuff like that. And apparently microdosing with those things really helps. So I don't think they took it too far at Oregon. I think they, they got it just right. Fine them for the, head, for the harder drugs. Weed's legal. Fine them for the harder drugs. If you're trafficking drugs, then yes, you will go to prison because that's different because you're obviously not using pounds of cocaine on your own. You're, you're trafficking that. And it, 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 I mean, it'll cut down on jail time. It'll cut down on filling up the prisons. It'll cut down on a lot of shit. And we'll see. bring in we'll money see. for tax. Just by legalizing weed, they cut down on the amount of arrests and people in uh, jail and harder drug use and all that shit. It, it, just, it, it just works. Don't arrest people for stupid shit, and usually you have less problems. Yeah. Now. I just wish it wasn't so expensive. What, the weed? Yeah. It's not the weed that's expensive, it's the fucking taxes. Yeah, true, true. Now, Oscar Acosta had come to Aspen to help Hunter more as a favor than anything else. He was also an aspiring writer and wanted help from Hunter on a story he was covering about the murder of an L.A. Times reporter. It was a story that Hunter had actually started working on for Scanlon's and now for Rolling Stone. Acosta wanted Hunter to go to L.A. to do interviews and update the piece. Oscar was a big, scary guy. By all accounts, a very sweet man when he wanted to be. But could snap at any time. And that scared people. The people that Oscar surrounded himself with were maybe even worse as they fairly distrusted the, quote, gringo writer. So much so that Hunter even said that he was more worried about his safety with them than he ever was around the Hell's Angels. So Hunter thought it best to find somewhere to get away from all the distractions of L.A. and really nail down the details in the story. And so hatched an idea. Hunter had an old friend from the National Observer that went to Sports Illustrated. He had asked Hunter if he wanted to make some easy freelance cash by doing a quick 250-word story on a motorcycle race in Las Vegas. He figured he'd take Oscar with him to get time together that they needed, do a quick little bit of actual reporting, and have SI pay for the whole thing. And after it was all said and done, the trip would give him the makings of his most famous work. But before he could get to writing that, he had to write the piece on the reporter's alleged murder. Now, the story was about Ruben Salazar, an L.A. Times reporter who had died in the riots in East L.A. in the Chicano area of the city. But some thought, Hunter and Oscar among them, that Salazar had been murdered by the L.A. police because of his long-standing and vocal outcry of corruption in the L.A. government and law enforcement. Go figure, somebody named Salazar is attributed to corruption. Okay. He's not, a, he, he, he is calling corruption out other places. He's not the one being called out for corruption. He's calling L.A. government and law enforcement out for corruption. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Different. Strange rumblings in Atsland, Atsland, would be his most serious piece of reporting he ever turned into Rolling Stone. This is when Hunter would meet Charlie Perry, one of the higher-ups at Rolling Stone, who was mostly responsible for getting the magazine out. 
Now, Charlie Perry was known around the office as quite the scary man himself, especially when it came to deadlines. Editor and writer David Felton told Hunter while visiting the San Francisco office once, Perry dangled him from a window for being over deadline. Perry said, quote, I held him out the window in the office. Not all of them, just top part of his body, his head and shoulders. But it was enough for Felton and it became a story around the office. I only kind of did it. Uh, Hunter went to the San Francisco office to write the piece and was set up in the record library with his typewriter. He had heard of Charlie Perry and was apparently fairly scared of his new editor. Perry stopped by the office one day and stuck his head into the library and introduced himself. And it made Hunter jump and scream. Quote, I got momentum. I got momentum. I'm on a train on greased wheels. I just need to keep the momentum up. Two days later, Perry stuck his head in again to see how things were going, and Hunter flinched and added, quote, I lost the momentum. I haven't slept. I haven't changed my clothes. My feet are rotting. Now, this piece ended up being a very traditional piece. In other words, boring. <laughs> Especially for Hunter. And Perry wasn't impressed. Quote, if I hadn't gotten paid for reading it, I might not have finished it. But it was honest, and Hunter had put his bias right on the front page of the article, leading him away from the bad white man argument made by Oscar's militant Chicano friends. Now, around this time, Jan started treating Hunter like a rock star, giving him a sort of license no other member of the staff could obtain. He withstood ribbing, some good-natured, some mean-spirited, and even endured the occasional blast from a fire extinguisher, a favored Hunter toy. Quote, the first time he pulled the fire extinguisher trick on me was one night in my house in San Francisco when we were sitting around taking acid. It was two or three in the morning. The fire was going. Joni Mitchell was on the stereo. Hunter was fussing around doing something, and I was listening to the music and quietly drifting. Hunter took this fire extinguisher sitting in the corner, aimed, and opened up on me. It was like an explosion of chalky dusk, and it's quite unpleasant, especially if you have a head full of acid. It's the only time I really got angry at him and told him to get the fuck out of the house. I think he was truly shocked by my reaction, but of course, he loved that too, and he reveled in the story for years. <laughs> Have you ever played with a fire extinguisher? I've had to use a fire extinguisher before. It's not fun. No, I meant played with. I've never I, I, no, I've never played with one. I've had to use one in an old uh, dryer that I had once, and it was it was not a great experience because it was a small confined area and the shit just went everywhere. I've played with one before. The The smell and inhaling, it's horrible, but... Well, because there's, there's more than one. We had the the ABC one that, that covers everything and it's really it's really chalky. It's really dusty. Um, if you just use like the CO2 types, it's more of just a, a really cold gas that comes out and I imagine those are probably a lot more fun than the type I had. I don't remember what kind it was. Uh, I was a teenager and my cousin and I, we were in this uh, empty rundown house and we were just spraying it everywhere and it was a foam. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Those are those are specifically for one type of fire. Uh, I have the ABC one that covers every type of fire and it, it they're not fun to use. It's, it's, and it's a horrible cleanup, too. Really bad. Now, in the spring of 71, things were good between Hunter and Jan. He had published two solid pieces by Hunter, and Hunter knew he had more stable home than he had with Scanlon's. While working on the Salazar article, which was intense, 
He had also been working on something for enjoyment that he thought would be perfect for Rolling Stone. Something purely for pleasure. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas was born at the Polo Lounge of Beverly Hills Hotel when a dwarf waiter walked up to Hunter with a portable phone and said, quote, This must be the call you have been waiting for all this time, sir. Or the story goes. Hunter and Oscar went to Vegas for the motorcycle race job. They spent most of their time in bars and casinos and driving the strip. Hunter had what he needed for the Salazar article and wrote a 25,000-word piece on the race for SI, which they aggressively rejected. That rejected article would be the foundation on what Fear and Loathing would be built on. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas was a heightened version of reality. While writing the Salazar story, Hunter went to David Felton's home one morning, clutching the, quote, Vegas thing. Only about 19 pages at the time. Felton loved it and handed it to Dion, who also loved it, and told Hunter to keep going with it. The pages made their way around the Stone's office, some breaking into laughter, others struck numb. They said that after you read it, the rest of the day, day felt very dramatic, and you kept thinking that things were going to pop out at you around the corners. <laughs> Hunter knew he would need more to extend the narrative of his Vegas adventure, so he added in, the National District Attorney's Conference on Drug Abuse. Prosecutors and cops came for three days of fun in Sin City, hoping to learn about the drug menace. But they didn't recognize that the menace was right there, sitting next to them during the seminars. Two experienced drug users, one disguised as a journalist, the other as an attorney. Hmm. Yeah, kind of weird that these two heavy drug users went to a conference on... Drugs. Well, they want to know where the drugs are. They know where the drugs are. Well, yeah. They want to cover, they want to see what everybody else thinks about drugs. Now, after two months away from his wife and son, Hunter finally got to come home. It took him a little bit to get back on track, but when he did, the words flew out of him. There was a big difference between writing for pleasure and writing for work, not to mention the freedom of writing, not as Hunter S. Thompson, but as his character, Raoul Armed with dexedrine, an ADHD medicine, and bourbon, in his basement on a desk made of an old door and two sawhorses, he worked through the summer of 1979. Oscar appeared as Dr. Gonzo and was changed from Chicano to Samoan because Hunter likes Samoa and he wanted to protect Oscar's identity. He even asks, I can't remember which president it is, but he sends a letter to one of the presidents asking if he can be the ambassador to America Samoa. He was turned down. Hunter called Ralph Stedman to illustrate the story. The article ran in two parts in Rolling Stone, November 11th and the 23rd of 1971, and was credited to Raoul Duke. Once Sports Illustrated turned down the article, they also refused to pay any of his expenses, necessitating a hasty retreat from Vegas without paying the hotel bill. Ooh. Something he got pretty good at when he was younger. Remember, yes. one of the things. Yes. So he knew how to do that. And that was before the windows were locked shut or welded shut. So you could sneak out the window. When he returned for the drug convention, that and the race were about a month apart, he was on the Rolling Stone dime and assumed they would also pay for his drugs, alcohol, and weapons paraphernalia. But what he thought was his expense money was actually his retainer. He ran up such a monumental credit card bill that American Express banned him for life. 
that's kind of because don't they accept like everyone? Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and apparently Diners Club also put him out on a hit list. Wow, and they yeah. don't even have Diners Club anymore. Yeah, they still have Diners Club. Do they? I think so. Yeah, my I parents used to have a Diners Club card. I think they got bought out by Discover. Oh, I'm not real sure. Now, Yan started a book division. It's called Straight Arrow and wanted to publish Fear and Loathing, but Hunter had already made a deal with Silberman at Random House. Now, I'm not going to go into depth with the story. Uh, a lot of people know the story. There's a movie and a book. You can read both of them. Uh, but the plot goes like this. Duke and Gonzo speed across the desert to Vegas with a trunk full of drugs, mescaline, LSD, ether, cocaine, nitrate, tequila, in pursuit of the American dream. They pick up a hitchhiker, which they scare so badly that they jump out of the car when it stops. They are so fucked up by the time they make it to Vegas that the simple process of checking into the hotel becomes a terrifying ordeal. Duke sees huge alligators and lizards. The people in the lobby have turned into reptiles. The race is chaos because of a sandstorm. They get ejected from a Debbie Reynolds show. Gonzo leaves town. Duke is a prisoner in his own room. Gets a telegram about a drug conference. He takes a new drug called adrenochrome that comes from the adrenal glands of living humans and watches President Nixon on TV. Gonzo comes back. They go to the conference high on mescaline, return to L.A., flies to Denver, goes into an airport drugstore and asks the woman behind the counter for amyl nitrates. She tells him that those are by prescription only. He tells her he's a doctor and hands her the doctor a divinity card. She sells him the nitrates, saying, quote, I hope you'll forgive me, doctor, but I had to ask. We get some real freaks in this place. And Duke walks out of the airport a free man in a free country. Okay. Wow. <laughs> I know I've seen the movie, but, like, wow. <laughs> Random House held up publication because they feared that Acosta would sue for defamation of character. He wasn't named in the book, but everyone knew it was him. Oscar had talked about suing Rolling Stone before, and Werner published his autobiography of a brown buffalo, his nickname, with straight arrow in hopes of placating him. Hunter tried to reason with him. Acosta claimed Hunter had stolen his intellectual property and said he was most upset that Hunter referred to Gonzo as Samoan. Hunter said that he was just trying to protect his friend. Oscar didn't believe him. But finally, after all that, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas was published by Random House in July 1972. He dedicated the book to Bob Giger, who helped him with his Hell's Angels in 66, and Bob Dylan, because Vice President Spiro Agnew went on about drug references in Mr. Tambourine Man, Hunter's favorite song. That's awesome. So, anybody ever wanted to know about all this shit? So a lot of what you see in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is real. And, of course, a lot of it has that hunter spin on it. So, like the uh, the bats that he sees when he's looking up at the sky and he's all high, he claims he really saw those bats, even though they weren't real, because, you know, they were hot. Now, Hunter's next job was to load up a trailer in his Volvo 174 and head to Washington, D.C. with Sandy, Juan, and their Doberman to set up the National Affairs Desk for the Rolling Stone. He had him with him a telefax machine that Hunter dubbed the Mojo Wire for sending his writings across country. Now, this was before the actual fax machine. They rented a two-story brick home in Rock Creek section of D.C. Sandy was pregnant again, 
with only a 25% chance of being successful. After settling in D.C., Hunter got on a plane to go back across country to Big Sur in December for Rolling Stone editorial conference. Hunter didn't want to go to the meetings. He would pull up to his hotel in his rented car and pull up on the sidewalk and block the door in the evening so no one could disturb him in the morning. That makes sense. <laughs> when he did show up, he was an obvious distraction, once showing up in a hotel smock and a robe wearing a blonde wig. Nobody knew why he was in a hotel smock and robe or how he got the hotel smock and robe to begin with. He would also scream, yell, and throw furniture when he wanted Jan's attention. The major development at this conference was the agreement that Hunter would cover the 1972 presidential campaign. From the New Hampshire primary through the last ballot being counted, Hunter, in return, would get a $1,000 a month retainer from Rolling Stone and a deal for a book on the campaign when it was all over. What he didn't know is that Jan would take his considerable expense out of the money he promised for the paperback sale of the book. Timothy Krauss was set to babysit him, a Harvard grad with a monumental stutter. Now, being on the road away from Sandy and the stress of writing bi-weekly campaign reports kept Hunter on edge, and he began to stray from his marriage. He was never really faithful, but out on the road, there were scores of young campaign workers and political groupies, and Hunter did not resist. This wasn't like the last campaign coverage. His peers on the bus were not overcome with love and admiration. He dressed badly and was usually late, causing the bus to be late. Hunter didn't get why political reporters had daily deadlines when he couldn't even get one in every other week. Krauss had newspaper experience and turned out to be a very useful as a handholder, but Hunter wasn't exactly reliable when it came to deadlines, and the mojo wire didn't help much. It was fairly unreliable. He would send in uh he would send in some letters and half of the page would be cut off or something, and he'd, he'd send in things like, maybe like, add a K, and he would just send that through, and they'd just get this thing said, add a K, and they'd be like, what the fuck is he talking about? Yeah, it was one of those things. Now, on the road, Hunter met Monty Chitty, a 19-year-old student at the University of Florida that hitchhiked to Jacksonville and traded pot to faculty to obtain credentials and board the train for the campaign. <laughs> they, met, they met in the rail car open bar, Hunter had hash, Chitty had Colombian pot, and they hit it off immediately. Of course. Now, so I say I talk about bus, I talk about train. The bus would take them from the hotel to the train. The train would follow the uh, candidates around the country. So if you're wondering why is he talking about bus, why is he talking about train, because they were all working for the same thing. Now, the campaign allowed Hunter to show off his story within a story style, all about the agony of reporting and writing a story every two weeks and the folklore and language that would surround the character called Hunter S. Thompson came from this period. An article called The Banshee Screams in Florida begins with Hunter reading a story in the Miami Herald, learning he had apparently run amok on the Sunshine Special, the campaign train, and terrorized Senator Muskie and almost everyone else. Now, this was news to Hunter, but apparently, a thug identified with the press badge as Hunter Thompson of Rolling Stone had mercilessly heckled Muskie, pulling on the candidate's pant legs at the campaign stop and shouting wild and obscene comments. Hunter pieced the chronology together. A couple of nights before, Hunter and Chitty had met Peter Sheridan, 
whom he dubbed the Savage Boohoo, in the lobby of the Ramada Inn. The Boohoo was drunk and angry, screaming about Muskie, and Hunter invited him to hang out with himself and Chitty. The Boohoo told them of how he was stuck in Palm Beach with no way to get to Miami, and Hunter intervened. Thirty years later, Chitty would finally tell the true story that Hunter got in the elevator in the hotel, leaving the Boohoo in the lobby. When the elevator came back down and the doors opened, all that was in the empty elevator was Hunter's press pass for the train. Three days later, after all this happened, Chitty got a call from the White House. Chitty was quick on his feet. Quote, Yes, I met Hunter S. Thompson of the Rolling Stone magazine. No, that was not Hunter Thompson who boarded the hotel bus Saturday morning taking us back to the train. Yes, I was with Hunter the entire night before, and I can only imagine this fellow lifted Hunter's press credentials from his jacket that evening. No, that was not Hunter Thompson on the train that day. Yes, this fellow was threatening almost everyone with broken whiskey bottles. Yes, he was screaming lewd and profane language, grabbing every female by the ass aboard the train. No, it was not Hunter Thompson who grabbed Ed Muskie's pants and attempted to pull him from the rear platform in the Miami train station during his final speech. I was standing 10 feet away and I could swear this fellow who went nuts was not Hunter Thompson. Chitty and Hunter both lied to the White House. <laughs> Hunter also started a rumor that Senator Muskie was having a Brazilian doctor come to his room to inject him with a strange Brazilian drug called Ibogene or Ibogaine. He never said it was the truth, just a rumor that he started. But people were starting to believe it. With all this craziness, the other reporters were reading his stuff and started to warm their cold shoulders to him. But Hunter didn't suffer hypocrites. He told Krauss to write down everything the other reporters did. Anytime they wiped their noses, smoked a joint, or fucked someone other than their wives, Krauss would eventually publish the book, The Boys on the Bus, calling out certain members of the press. Uh, now, while in Washington, San Sandy delivered a son, but the child developed hyaline membrane disease, the same thing that killed one of the Kennedy children, and he died after one day. Aww. Yeah, so I'm just going to get this out there. Sandy and Hunter don't have any more children. They try. It just doesn't happen. So They have the one and only? They have one and only. Yeah. Now, after a season of Hunter's relentless travel, the family was home in Al Farm, but Hunter, Hunter was there to sleep, not to be Sandy's husband. Fear and Loathing was selling, and Rolling Stone articles had made Hunter a celebrity, so, there were the parties. And in the fall, Hunter was back on the campaign trail. But Hunter was fed up with the political system. George McGovern, the man he was pushing for, had lost and he was sick of the deadlines and all things Werner. Particularly, the editors complaining over expenses and Hunter's being shuttled to the zoo plane, the plane following McGovern around the country, for the last weeks of the campaign. Hunter resigned from the magazine and demanded his name and Raoul Duke be removed from the masthead. He didn't want Jan profiting off his image. Jan refused. This didn't affect the campaign book he was contract to write, contracted to write. He, of course, missed the deadline because he wanted to include the upcoming Super Bowl of Miami versus Washington. He was leaning towards Washington, but 
Once he found out that Nixon was for Washington and the coach, George Allen, was televising prayer meetings with the players, he decided that, quote, any team with both God and Nixon on their side was fucked from the start. <laughs> By February, Fear and Loathing on the campaign trail, 72, was being printed. Fear and Loathing being added to uh, all uh, to his writing is pretty common now. So if I say Fear and Loathing, it's not exactly Las Vegas. It could be a lot of other things. So this was Fear and Loathing on the campaign trail, 72. By some, many in the political world, it's considered to be his greatest intellectual accomplishment. Ultimately, it wasn't about the campaign. It was about Hunter. Like everything else? Something like that. Now, after that, he took a break from everything. But in April of 1973, Playboy came knocking, hoping to capitalize on his newfound fame. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They sent him on a deep-sea fishing expedition, wanting to call it Old Gonzo and the Sea. He did the article, even though it took over a year to write and 18 months to appear in the magazine. The piece started out as a report on the fishing tournament requiring a trip to Cozumel, which to Hunter sounded more like R&R than work. Hunter took along Michael Solheim, who was an Aspen bar owner and helped him on Hunter's sheriff campaign. He was the one who owned the hotel, uh, the, the, the bar and Hotel Jerome, oh. where they did all their stuff. Michael would be known as Yale Bloor and would play foil to Raul Duke. And, per usual, it was about getting the story more than the story itself. The reason it took so long to write was because when he was about 40 pages in, all political hell broke loose. A break-in at the Democratic National Headquarters in June 1972 had turned out to be more than a minor burglary. It was the breaking of Watergate. Bye-bye, Nixon. Mm -hmm. Watching Hours and hours of coverage on the spectacle caused Hunter to stop his rest from politics. Quote, I've decided to make a big move to the Washington Hilton and start fucking around with this Watergate story. After all the ranting and raving, he was thoroughly disappointed to find out that he wasn't on Nixon's enemy list. Quote, How can I show my face in the Jerome Bar when the word finally reaches Aspen that I wasn't on it? <laughs> He was, after all, the first in the press to compare Nixon to Hitler in writing. He was a small nobody at the time. Yeah. By the time Hunter hit... The, uh, and it was a good chance that Nixon remembered his dis football discussion with him. So even though he was saying these things about him, he still had a little place in his heart because there's another, another football up. Yeah, so. that could be too. By the time Hunter hit D.C. in mid-July, much of the key testimony was over. But... His arrival was news. When he entered the Senate hearing room, heads turned, his name was whispered, reporters were asking for his autograph, he decided it would be better to watch the hearings from the safety of TV. Fear and Loathing at the Watergate was his first major Rolling Stone article since the campaign, but it wasn't Hunter's kind of story. He wasn't at the center of the drama, and there is no struggle to get the story. So it, it's not a typical Hunter S. Thompson by all accounts, Hunter had never done cocaine before 1973, but when Rolling Stone sent him a new edition of Freud's cocaine papers to review, Hunter felt the need to try it. He had okay. avoided it before as a rich boy's plaything and classified it as a jive drug, but after a few snorts, he discovered that he liked it. 
It amped up his energy, and with the right number of perfectly timed snorts, he can now stay up for three days straight. This was really when Hunter's production declined. The cocaine would keep him awake, but he became a different person. It was around this time that Sandy started to suspect Hunter was cheating. When he was in Mexico for Playboy, a package was delivered to the house. She opened it, and a tape fell out, along with a note from one of Hunter's friends saying it might be best if, quote, Sandy didn't hear this. Of course, she played it. Nothing dirty, no smoking gun, as they say, but Sandy could tell from the sound of intimate familiarity in the woman's voice on tape that she and Hunter were together. Quote, I immediately knew. For the next few years, they lived in a marital stalemate. The lost children in their marriage depressed Sandy, turning her to drink. Hunter didn't like her drinking to make it through the day and warned her to get it together. Deep down, Hunter was also in pain from losing the babies, but he was an old-school Southern gentleman and didn't know how to talk about his pain. He also began to drink more and doing more drugs. He also indulged in other women as him and Sandy began to drift apart. And that is where we will pick it up for our fourth and final episode of Hunter S. Thompson. What a douche. If you can't, you have to be able to talk to your wife, you fucking asshole. I mean, this was a time when it was kind of a weird thing for men to talk about their feelings. If you talked about your feelings, you were, you know, you were a dumb little, you know, whatever. You were called a sissy. Yeah. The things he, The things he would call his, you know, little brother. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. It's just not something he did. And that, yeah, that's something you've you got to be able to talk about it. It is what it is. But he was he was all for the hippie movement and shit, and hippies talked about their feelings. He was for the hippie movement as far as people being free to do what they want, drugs and 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 you know the environment and all this shit. But well, like he he was he was for gun control too, even though he owned a ton of guns and liked to shoot things. So you know he he's a. Do as I say, not as I do, type of guy. Ah, like fucker. he, like he hates the fact that Sandy drinks, but he's a fucking alcoholic. But Hunter was able to handle his liquor. He was very rarely drunk. He drank throughout the day. Like I said, he he drunk he drank enough to inebriate an entire soccer team, but he was never really drunk. He he, he was drunk, but he was like a fun drunk, not a. He was a functioning alcoholic. He yeah. was, he was, the drinking never affected his production. Right. It's when the cocaine started. It's when the drugs really got heavy is when it started. Because he hates sloppy drunks. People who just get drunk and get stupid, the, to him, those are the worst type of people. And we'll have a story on uh, our last episode about, about a sloppy drunk that he hates. And it almost causes him some jail time. Ooh. Yeah. Again, just because it's our last episode, it's still going to be as crazy as all the other ones. All the way up to his fucking two funerals. Two funerals. Yeah. <sighs> all right, Stephanie, let's uh, let's give everybody socials and get the fuck out of here. Okay, on Twitter and Instagram, we are 
at open a f i n g book and i am at e c j b a t and you can tell that her aura gel has worn off because she could speak correctly yes i am young etam6 on twitter young etam on instagram you can email us open a effing book at gmail.com stephanie our goodreads goodreads.com slash open a f i n g book we still have plenty of stickers on patreon all your donations go to make this show Best we possibly can. That's patreon.com slash open book. Go to my wife's Etsy page. Buy some of her amazing soaps. I know we, we push it at the end, but uh, we should push it more, I think. It's etsy.com slash shops slash. No, shop. No S? No S. Okay. Slash shop slash Stephanie Young Art. Come back. Middle of the week for our weekday cliff notes. It'll be our Thanksgiving episode, which I don't think is going to mean anything because I don't know if we'll have any Thanksgiving books. I don't know what books we'll be pushing, but, you know, whatever. Uh, Rate and review us wherever you listen. Apple, you can rate and review and follow uh, and subscribe. Spotify, you can follow. All that good shit. Wherever you're listening now, all the apps, all the apps that you got, just go follow us on all of them. There you go. Yeah. Uh, Go to your library. Local independent bookstore. Well, libraries are probably closed right now. Well, in Illinois. Yeah. Not everywhere. There's some states that aren't doing shit, so. Just check and see if your library yeah. is open. And, and if it is, Most independent bookstores still have a, uh, a website. You can order through them instead of ordering through, like, the conglomerates like Amazon, Books A Million, Barnes & Noble, all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, buy a book from a local independent author from a local independent bookstore. It's the best thing you can do to help these people out right now. And I think that's it. I believe so. Alright, nothing else to add? Uh, nope, no. I think we're good. Alright, well, take care of yourselves, take care of one another. Between now and the time we get to talk to you again, do yourself a favor. Go open a fucking book. Alright, we'll see you. Bye, guys.